Warning, what you're about to hear may contain mature language, adult situations, and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Also, just yeah. being away from the coast and sort of the rhythm of the universe, right? We're oh, absolutely. We're in tune with what's happening cosmically because, uh, you know, the moon affects the tides and the tides affect us. And when we're right there, to uh, to, you know, tap our foot to that uh, the tune that you, the universe is singing to us, that just uh, keeps us looking young and fresh. Yeah, it's. I, I completely agree. It's very like. The concept of living like completely inland does not like work for me. Oh man, I went to Montana, which is beautiful beyond all comprehension and an right. amazing place, but I could feel that I was landlocked and away from the coast yeah. and it made me slightly uncomfortable. Yeah, same. I've been like a, uh, you know, places where there's yeah, there's no water around and Arizona beautiful uh, Colorado beautiful same thing like and then there's things they have there that we don't have here but like yeah the very other like there's no water anywhere guys you're, you're aware of that right but even the, the rivers right which you could easily mm-hmm. like you know uh, fall in love with there's still something about it where you know where it's just coming from the top of a, a big hill right you know it's not it's finite it's not gonna last forever yeah it's so weird it's such a weird notion and it takes a while you have to sit with it for a bit but like eventually you just start picking up on it it's like oh Mm -hmm. it's a very odd feeling and that always like gets me thinking about the uh uh like water world versus mad max debate like if if you were going to live in an apocalyptic you know future would you rather live in water world or would you rather live in the you know the big nothing the endless desert of mad max and it's interesting like people the way people take that yeah I mean, I think ultimately probably Mad Max, um, just because like day to day life would be like slightly more sustainable and easier. Um, but I would definitely, I think, I don't think there'd be there would be less moments of tranquility. Yeah. Yeah, Waterworld's a tough one because I mean they're two sides of the same coin where, you know, there's nothing to drink. Right. Uh, either in, in either case, but like, do you want to spend all your time bobbing bobbing around on the water, or and eating fish potentially, or do you want to, uh, you know, eat lizards and, and rats in the desert? Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I guess well, there is kind of a respite from the the desert sun and heat, right? You can you know dig a hole in the ground and go yeah. in a cave and things like that, but in the water, like. Well, I guess, I mean, like, I, while neither of the movies are quote-unquote based in reality, uh, I think Waterworld does fall into some more holes of, like, what are the problems living in Waterworld? You know, like, there's no water to drink, and the first shot is him peeing into, like, that little cup, you know, a little machine to, like, extract a few drops of drinkable water from his pee. But couldn't you just do that with the salt water, you know, run salt water through the same thing? Yeah, I feel like over a, a certain amount of time... Uh, someone would have figured out some kind of a system. Yeah, so like the the scarcity of fresh water, like if they have these water filter things that they can just make makeshift on their boat, they can clean your pee enough. Like I'm sure you can do that with water, and fresh water would be actually a very easy commodity to come by. You know, in that respect, in that respect, or also like there's not enough world water in the world to cover up everything, so you there would still be plenty of land. Oh, okay, guy. I mean, I'm sorry. Okay, it's just the- okay, guy who knows how much land is available in the world. Do you know, like, uh, that's not in- what we're talking about, though. The that's, that's not true. the rules of the premise. So, well, do you also know, like, uh, um, what is the uh, so they find dry land at the end, right? And <laughs> he gets directors- land sickness. <laughs> yeah, he gets land, which actually is it's a real, thing. it's real, it's real. But like, uh, they they in the director's cut, or the, I don't even know if it's a director's cut, but just whatever the extended cut is. Uh, you discover that the, they're on that bit of land is the top of Mount Everest. Oh yeah, they find the sign or whatever. The sign, which like, but also means like there would be literally no oxygen up there. It's true. <laughs> Actually, what would that do to the atmosphere and and the air? Like, if there was nothing, I know the algae and coral and things like that contribute yeah. to the 
oxygen, but like, would that be enough to sustain human life? Or I don't think so. I mean, also that that would mean that the water levels rose fifty thousand feet. Yeah, uh, which is just so ludicrous. where I think that story does work better if it like dry land's not gone, but they just don't know where it is, so they consider it a myth. You know, that's a much better synopsis than like all the land is gone except for this one tiny spot. I mean, I guess that is a possibility, right? Because the the movie, the rules of the movie set that up. It's like no dry land is 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 possible. We just don't know how to get there, right. and we don't have the tools to find it. So yeah. But even like the stuff with like those skyscrapers and stuff, they wouldn't be when they're underwater and they like most of those would still be like only partially submerged. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, whatever. I love partially submerged stuff. There's that new trailer. Uh, what is it? Uh, with goddamn uh, Hugh Jackman. I know what. Yeah. Remembrance or yeah. nostalgia or whatever the fucking stupid title <laughs> yeah, totally. is. It's I think it's remembrance. Uh, uh, Membies. Uh, but there's, uh, the, the place they're in is sort of a, just mildly sunken city. You know, yeah. it's like five or 10 feet of water. I love that shit. That's so cool. The visuals, like look at that movie, uh, looks really cool, but it looks like a dog shit movie. Oh, there's so much stupid, like recycled, like I'm looking for a woman. Oh, mm, right. You can't, uh, let go of the memories of your dead wife or no, she's still alive. Blah. Yeah, dude. Like all the same, like old tired shit. Mm-hmm. So it's like, let's spend a billion dollars making it the most boring movie possible. Yeah. There's Double lots time. of other cool movies coming out. Um, that aren't getting, uh, very much distribution, uh, which is too bad. Such as, uh well um uh there's some movie called Gaia Oh that looks pretty cool Did I want to see something about that Gaia There's also a movie called In the Earth uh directed by Ben Wheatley who you may know oh, no. from uh Kill List he did one other movie I can't remember Oh High Rise Yeah that he did, he did Kill List uh uh Free Fire but it's like the these scientists head to a like a test site in a forest, and they meet these these people that are sort of like covered in mud and living like you know oh, natives with bone. I totally and stuff. saw a trailer for this movie. It looked good. Yeah, I thought it looked pretty cool. At least worth like worth rolling the dice on. Yeah. But by the way, everybody, welcome to the Trash Heap Podcast. Uh, this is the show where we are uh, out to prove that there are no garbage movies, only garbage opinions. Uh, we're about. 23 minutes into the episode and uh oh, just want to let you know what the fuck you're listening to <laughs> oh my goodness <sighs> oh you know what i've uh, been watching lately is like old tv movies from the 90s oh man there's a whole ass podcast about that and i can't remember what the name of it is but that's all they talk about is uh just straight up tv movies so like i was watching um i told i was watching like the child's play movies right the originals and then uh that got me looking at tom holland's uh filmography yeah. because like right at, right after he directed T- child's play which is definitely like his biggest hit he just kind of fell off the map you know didn't, didn't he direct a psycho sequel he wrote uh psycho 2 but that was ah. like early in his career like so early in his career he was doing mostly screenwriting he wrote the psycho sequel um he wrote that movie the beast within yeah and, and then uh, I think his first directorial movie was Fright Night. Yeah. And then he did, uh, like, what that? Fatal Beauty. Then he did Child's Play. Huge hit. And then, boof, he's gone, you know, pretty much. Well, he rubbed people the wrong way. Like, he really, like, was sort of an antagonist with, like, writers and producers. And I mean, that's, I mean, if you see an interview with him, he just seems like, like a good old boy cowboy. It was just like... Yeah, so I came in, I was making this horror movie, right? And I wanted some extra blood. And it's like, who is this guy? But oddly enough, the movie he made uh, uh, right after Child's Play was a TV movie. That was his follow-up that I called The Stranger Within that I vividly remember. 
seen as a child. Oh, weird. And uh, like no, I no idea until this moment that they were. You know, there was a Tom Holland movie because I didn't know who Tom Holland was. You know, when I was eight or nine or whatever. Yeah, imagine not caring about directors and writers and all of that yeah. stupid. And I hadn't even seen like trivia. the Child's Play movies or Fright Night at that point in my life. You know, so it was just like no connection. But um, it's the premise of the movie is a young Ricky Schroeder impersonates the missing son of a woman, and. Uh, infiltrates her life only to wreak havoc and mayhem on it. And Chris Sarandon's in it as the woman's boyfriend. And then he's just like a psychopath that terrorizes her. And it is it is truly a bizarre movie in tone. Wait, Ricky but Schroeder also, is a psychopath or Chris Sarandon is a psychopath? Ricky Schroeder is a psychopath. Chris Sarandon's like a very like nice guy in this why is it in these scenarios that the the person who like the stepfather is kind of the same way if if you're gonna lie and just like weasel your way into a good situation why then wouldn't you just be like cool i did i did it the grift is complete now i'm just gonna enjoy this instead of like wreaking havoc and creating chaos and like ruining people's lives so the big reveal in this is that so the kid, the movie starts out with the kid being abducted by like an old woman. You just hear, you don't see her face. You just hear an old woman like being like, "Hey, little boy, come with me." And then this kid, Ricky Schroeder, comes shows up saying like, "Oh, me, it's your it's your son." Blah blah blah. And he's like, "So like, I was raised by you know these people. I called them Grandpa and Gram and Gramps. And uh, then they died. And that's when I found out that I was kidnapped. And then my my brothers were kidnapped too, but they passed away, you know, or something." Uh, ludicrous like that, and then the big reveal is that he, that story is true. Ludicrous was like that story. Yes, Ludicrous liked it. He he wrote the a rapper. A, a, Ludicrous was like, yeah, "Whoa, he, what a story!" If, <laughs> Tell it if again. If you go if you go on IMDb <laughs> and Amazon, he's written very bu- glowing reviews for this movie. Hell yeah, um, I love Ludicrous's IMDb account. <laughs> uh, but so the reveal is that's true. He was a kidnapped child. But he wasn't her son. Her son was there, and then uh, he, her son, tried to escape. So Graham and Gramps killed him, and then he killed Graham and Gramps. Ricky Schroeder did. Found all the stuff about where his actual, all the different kids who were kidnapped, families were, and he kept trying to go to those ones and like infiltrate them and be a part of their family and claim to be their son. But it just kept not working out because he had his crazy psychosis from being. Uh, kidnapped. Anytime anyone like questioned him or said like, oh, "Wait a minute, this part of your story doesn't add up," he's like, "Well, I guess I got to kill all of them now." Oh, that makes you sense. Know? He just didn't have the 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 nerve and the the fucking skills to like maintain the illusion. But yeah, you can watch it on YouTube. It's called The Stranger Within. I, I'm I recommend not it. Do that. Suit yourself. I hate you know, the, I hate those kind of stories because it's always like. It's just people lying to each other and like right. not knowing what's going on and like. There's lots of odd scenes too that are just like, uh, like Chris Randon's taking a bath and Ricky Schroeder just like walks in and is like, "Hey, buddy, how's it going?" and like kisses him on the cheek, and at no point is Chris Randon like, "Oh, what's going on right now?" He just acts like this is a total normal thing. <laughs> Hi, everybody starved for a company, you know. If uh, that's true. Uh. It's like having the reason people get a pet, right? You want them to, a dog to like nudge the door open while you're taking a bath and yeah. prop itself up on the edge of the tub and like start licking you. And you're like, ah, what are you doing? Get out of here. But you secretly, you love it. You know what I think about Ricky Schroeder? That guy's a real piece of work. We'll post videos of himself harassing store employees about mask policies. And yeah, it's the same with Scott Bayo. Like all these delusional oh, yeah. child stars who had. You know, they were surrounded by yes-men growing up and never got challenged yes. on anything, and so they grow up and they think they can just do whatever the fuck they want without... Yeah, he's like he's he's like Scott Bayo Prime. Yeah. Like, he's always wearing a Blue Lives Matter hat, and we've gone on his Instagram a couple times, and it's literally just him, videos of him talking about... Uh, it's like, so we're into day 127 of Biden's occupation of the White House. Um, I've just bought a bunch of rice because uh, I'm waiting for the storm, you know... All this stuff. It's just, yeah, he's just a, a turd. My advice to people like that is if you think that something is coming, 
by all means move into the middle of nowhere and start prepping. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's just like stay stay in your basement. Like you'll you'll be you'll feel safe. I'll be happy. You know, you'll be yeah. doing everyone a favor. Yeah. That would be that would be fine with me. No yeah. problem. Just don't come to the grocery store when I'm there to like complain. I hate that the grocery store is such like a like a battleground now. Like I every time mm-hmm. I go into like QFC or Kroger for those of you who are from whatever the fuck part of the country, uh every time I go in I'm like, "Okay, let me get ready for trouble here just in case yeah. like who's who's going to start some shit or like mouth off or act a fool or do something completely unnecessary." That right. has nothing to do with buying like a box of Lucky Charms, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, what if we could all just play it cool? Like, I feel like grocery stores should be treated like churches. Like, you don't battle on holy ground. So, like, there was a metropolitan market, in, you know, not far from where I live, and there's a Safeway right across the street from it. And over the, you know, the last handful of years, I've just watched that Safeway churn into the biggest dump ever. And I was there, you know. If, a couple weeks ago and the man the, the manager came running out of the building like yelling at somebody and walking the parking lot like he's like get out of you fucking dick face and i was like <laughs> i don't care like what that guy did if he like shoplifted or something like this is not the appropriate way for a grocery store manager to be handling this you know like this isn't roadhouse you know you're not like some bouncer at like some cd bar uh, like you're the manager of a fucking grocery store with like who's in charge of numerous employees. Well, he's also like, not following the rules. Like if he's gonna be a roadhouse style cooler, like you gotta I mean, follow true. the rules as set forth by Dalton, right? That's true. And that's a good not, point. He's not adhering to those rules, but yeah, I the first thing I learned in retail was uh, don't don't worry about shit getting stolen. It's not worth it. It's not worth the confrontation. Yeah. It's not worth getting into situations. Like, it's just a little bit of product. Like, the world's not going to end if somebody walks out with uh, some mac and cheese or a skateboard or a couple of DVDs. I knew this guy who worked at a, he got like a, I can't remember what he did. Oh, he was in the Air Force. And he was married to like this, uh, someone I worked with like years ago. And then he got like a, a second job being like security at Best Buy. And I went oh, yeah, there he was the to... yellow shirt guy. Lost, yeah, loss prevention. Yeah, and he had told me about like how basically like he's he's like loss prevention, but they can't stop you. You know, they can't, nope. they won't do anything. They'll just say, can you please not steal? Yeah, you just go and, and make you... contact. Because nine and times then... out of 10, that actually works. Right. So like, so then one day I went in there and like he's right by the door and there's all the TVs like on sale right there. And I was like, so I could just take this and you can't do anything. And he legit thought that I was going to do it. And he's like, please don't do it. Please. And I was like, I'm, like, I'm not going to fucking steal the TV. And he's just like, I, I'll get in trouble if you do. And I was just like, but you can't stop me though, right? Like, I can do it. Yeah. And like, you won't call the cops or anything, right? And he's like, no. And I was just like, but please don't do it. Please. Yeah. And that's the thing where most people are reasonable. But yeah. you at your most antagonizing like would definitely put someone in that position of oh, like totally, being nervous yeah. that you're gonna walk it's out like, of the TV. Like, I think I think he might just steal the TV. <laughs> uh, well, guys, in case you didn't know, this is a this is the Trashy P- Podcast, the show where we talk about movies and uh, things of, of that nature. I am shocked that I have not puked while recording this show you th- that's so funny that you say that because the episode that i listened to that i was like oh that was a good intro you were actually hung over oh really yeah it was the trash heave goes to summer camp <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah. You, i did the intro because you were all fucked up i was like i ain't doing it you're like Whoa. you gotta you, gotta... You, you could hear the alka seltzer like sizzling in the background yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, yes, this is the Trashy Podcast, the movie where we go and find overlooked movies, underrated <laughs> movies, movies that are hated for no good reasons, and we give them a second chance. I'm Elliot. The other guy talking is Keith. You, you said this is the movie where we watch movies. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is the this is the show. That's exactly why I leave it open, because spontaneous fun things can happen like that. Things that it's true. you couldn't predict in a million years. Keith, what's our theme I going on right it. now? Uh, the rhythm of the ocean 
uh, here on the coast and how it connects us to the universe because it's uh, governed by the the gravity of the moon and it's you know it's the the rhythm and song of the cosmos uh, and people who are inland in the Midwest are uncultured swine and they're not connected to such things. Correct. And uh, so we're obviously better than them. And by way of that that kind of thinking, uh, we, we decided to, for sci-fi summer, which is sort of short for science fiction summer, uh, we decided to check out the 2010 film Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yes. A surreal tour de force, an exercise in style and mood. This is a fucking movie put it put it on and slam your foot down on the gas yeah that's what that's this what this was, is all about uh, directed by uh panos cosmatos cosmatos pa- um, pantone who, comatose is what you, i've decided to call him that also works who you might know from a, a more successful movie of his called mandy you've definitely probably heard us talk on about that movie on the show before uh, this is his first feature, though. So the, Mandy was his follow-up. This is his, That was his sophomore effort. His brilliance, the brilliance of Pantone Comatose, is an exercise in... Uh, nepotism. Yes, that's right. This uh, Yes, this incredible body of work by Pantone Comatose is made possible like by were... Hollywood nepotism. <laughs> I like how you were like... You ref- moments ago, you refused to make fun of people with mental disorders, but you're totally okay making fun of someone's uh, foreign-sounding name. Well, here's the thing: is uh, his name is not difficult to pronounce or anything like that. That's not yes. the gag here. Uh, the gag here is I was in the shower and I was thinking about words that uh, you know names sound like, and I was like, "What if yeah. I just gave this guy a kooky name based on words that are similar?" Uh, and also more common in my vernacular. I mean, I love yeah. his name. I love his family uh, and everything they've done. Uh, I don't. I don't presume to make fun of people's names. Or I'm fucking down for for people's names. Just trying to spice things up and have a spice little fun, you know. So, what do you do? You, uh, you like this movie, Keith? Like I said, I like this whole fucking family of people making movies yeah. because Panos Cosmatos is the son of George P. George Panos. Cosmatos. <laughs> I think that's what the P stands for. I hope so. And what is uh, he responsible for? Oh, some classics. Uh, Tombstone, Leviathan, Rambo 2. Um, Cobra. Movie, Cobra. Uh, that movie with Peter Weir and the giant rat. Um, the giant rat? Not Peter Weir. Peter Weller. And like his house is invested with like a... Oh, like a, of unknown a origin. Yes, yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, some movie about an earthquake or a volcano or something. A shadow conspiracy. Shadow conspiracy. Yeah, lots of lots of lots of fun movies. Some great action movies. Some wacky stuff. I'm glad that you mentioned Tombstone because you'll never guess where Beyond the Black Rainbow came from. Oh, I know. It was financed it- by DVD residuals from Tombstone. George Cosmatos was like, Ah, what am I going to do with all this Tombstone money? They sold yeah, all was, these goddamn DVDs with Kurt Russell, and uh, I just, just drove the truckload of money up to my house. What am I going to do with it? Uh, Panos, go make a movie. And you know what he said? Panos said that he used a a modernist color palette, right, influenced by Manhunter, so so the, the prototype to uh, Silence of the Lambs, yep. and The Keep. Oh, yeah. He also used his night night scenes were influenced by John Carpenter's student film Dark Star. Uh-huh. He also referenced Suspiria, George yeah, Lucas's pretty... THX 1138. There's also references to 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's also references to Altered States. He this guy literally took a who's who of sick movies and was like i'm gonna put that in my movie i'm gonna put that in my movie yeah that in my movie oh what's cool too is i wrote like i wrote this down i was like you know like watching it like and being like just visually like okay this seems to be influenced by i wrote down argento kubrick uh wrote down thx uh george lucas specifically for thx 1138 
um, and a few other things. But what's cool is like, yes, there are, you know, visual influences, but with only a couple exceptions that I noticed, there's not like, oh, I'm going to copy this scene or I'm going to do this exactly the way they did it in that movie. You know, there is a scene that's to me straight out of THX 1138, which is the scene at the, towards the end where uh, our young protagonist is climbing up that like tunnel. And uh, there's a scene that seemed very reminiscent of me to me from the movie, the, the man who fell to earth with David Bowie. Uh, but by and large, it just seems like, oh, these are, yeah, visual influences, but not like dictating how he makes the movie or copying shots, you know? No, like not that. at all. Like he did yeah. exactly what like a, a craftsman and someone with some skill and uh, ability would do. He took that inspiration and then used right. it as a jumping off point to do something new. I have to read this 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 bit. Like I think Panos Cosmatos is uh fucking awesome and an exciting director and I love that he doesn't come out with movies very often. Mm-hmm. And he is one of us, but but supremely talented and this is the proof. As a child, Cosmatos frequented a video store named Video Attic. During these trips, he would browse the horror film section looking at the boxes, although he was not allowed to watch such films. During these times, he would instead imagine what the film was. He would then later uh, reflect upon his experience making Black Rainbow, where his goals were to create a film that is sort of imagining an old film that doesn't exist. Oh, that's really cool. The year 1983 was chosen for the story as it's the first year he went to Video Attic. Additionally, he thought the idea of setting a film one year before 1984 was funny. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny. The genesis of the film was an overlapping between two, two of his ideas. One was a film about a girl trapped in an asylum, while the other was a video installation promoting a research facility that didn't exist. And eventually he realized he could combine the two ideas into the same movie. Oh, that's um, fucking yeah. magical. What one thing I like about him is like because this movie set in the eighties. It is with the exception uh, with uh, there's a flashback that takes place in the sixties, but predominantly it's set in the eighties. Mandy's set in the eighties, and you know what we were talking about. I think in the last episode or the episode before that, like oh we all love the eighties guys, but like let's get, get over it, right? But his movies don't seem like winks or nods towards that time period. It seems more like. A fascination with that time period rather than nostalgia he's not taking a sack full of pop culture references and beating you over the head the only reason we know it's in the 80s is because he creates a mood but largely the characters and the events are isolated yeah so you're not walking through a town square where it's like well here's the neon signs and people carrying boom boxes and everyone's wearing high top sneakers it's not that kind of heavy-handed nonsense absolutely yeah it's like it's more the way like some directors just are fond of making like british period films you know they like that they like that time period and the culture and they want to make stories that revolve around that and that seems to be kind of what he's doing as well rather than just trying to send love letters to his childhood even though as we discover you know you just said in his inspiration that is part of it it doesn't necessarily like screaming at you on the screen you know no it's not it's not like a medieval film or a you know sort of uh, english aristocracy type film where there's like you know complicated draperies and outfits and costumes right. and you know it's not a period piece per se because it's not it's not largely about the 80s it's about these events occurring at this facility Right. And believe you me, uh, there are strange things afoot at the Arbor- Arborea Institute. Yes, there are. And um, uh, you get you get a sense right off the bat because there's a fucking commercial telling you all about what the institute would yeah, like to it's do. Yeah, it's kind of like this like new age pseudoscience research center that can help you find enlightenment in a new life. Uh, it's almost like an infomercial ad that, the, that, the, that it starts with. Yeah, what, it's, is, it's what is the, this movie it's overall? It's the way overall? to combine uh, science and spirituality into a perfect marriage so that you can transcend into a higher being. It's very reminiscent of like 
old uh you were watching those like old like cult public access shows or uh no, I didn't have public access. That's how poor I was. We we didn't even have access to public access. I mean, you can watch them on YouTube. You can go on YouTube and we like watch these old uh, TV shows that these cults made. They were like, join us for spiritual enlightenment in our new center, blah, blah, blah. But what's the overall premise of this movie? What's I, I mean, it's somewhat convoluted and strange, but... What's the setup here? Well, as far as I could tell, a brilliant young doctor is has a young girl captive, and she seemingly has uh, psychic abilities uh, that mm-hmm. he's trying to bring out and exploit. It's not, not something we haven't seen before. It's very reminiscent of something like a Scanners or even maybe a Fire Starter. Um, yeah. But there's also, you know, this strange facility with strange devices and yeah it's not like you said it's not the normal facility you see in those movies it's not a government facility it's this independent new age uh like spiritual science center yeah and it appears Uh, to be the this lab where the girl is being held captive is underneath a sort of like a biosphere or biodome right type situation so Hidden, hidden from the public yeah so which is amazing i love that this is in a shared universe with the Polly Shore canon, and this this was what you know they they go to the biosphere in in biodome, and uh, you know not realizing underneath there's you know captive captive people with psychic abilities. Yeah, Pretty all incredible. The while, all the while, some crazy experiments going under uh, just underneath beneath the feet of Polly Shore and Steve. Yeah, they're wheezing, wheezing on some kind of a black goo. God. Um, yeah, that's a setup for the movie. Uh, yeah, I like this movie too. It's, I, I don't like it as much. I hadn't seen this until we watched it for the show. So I did not care for it as much as Mandy, which I just think is just a modern masterpiece. Um, I think this is a very great first effort for a director. Like, you know, see, if I had seen this movie prior, I would have been like, this isn't my favorite movie in the world, but I really want to see what this guy makes next, you know? Um, visually, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, and I like, you know, you mentioned his film references, but one thing I noticed that he did in this one and in Mandy is he takes visual references, not just from other movies, which is very common these days, but from other sources of mediums. I kept thinking of like watching this, thinking of like the covers from like old sci-fi books from the seventies. Oh yeah. I think Um, you're right on the money with that. Mandy, like obviously was visually influenced by like old heavy metal uh, album covers and stuff of that nature, you know, and uh, I remember uh, somewhat related to this. I watched an interview with Guillermo del Toro a while back, and he was talking about like when he brings on new, like when he hires like a creative designer, and he and they have them for like or concept artists for designing monsters and stuff. And when they're you know interviewing and they show him monsters he goes like okay well what were your visual references or what were your inspirations for this and as soon as they start saying like well i was a big fan of the you know like uh john carpenter's the thing or i i like uh you know a classic era horror movies so like frankenstein and stuff he gets he that's when he loses interest because if you're only taking your visual cues from old movies you're just recycling images from old movies and he's like more interested he's like when someone takes their inspiration from yeah 16th century painter or something you know yeah yeah they do they do take inspiration from paintings which is Mm -hmm. that's the only way to go (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) no you're right though this movie is incredible look at like it's got like i said it's an exercise in mood and style but Mm -hmm. the like the the red lighting sort of permeating everything underneath the institute and like smooth glassy surfaces kind of reflecting everything and then there's also these like dreamy blues and fuzzy like grays and yeah uh you're also like you're seeing shots that are like out of focus and like wiggling and blurry and uh you're getting like sort of like shots layered on top of each other there's an awesome moment where uh dr barry is taking some medication in the bathroom Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was like two shots on top of each other playing at the same time, but you get like a weird sort of like crossfade and blur as his uh, demeanor changes while he's taking the medication. 
mm-hmm. and it's awesome. Like this, yeah. this guy is like all about technique, and there's some really cool stuff. Almost every frame of the movie is gorgeous. Like even the most mundane uh, images or uh, subject matter, he's framing it in such a way he's getting in super close, uh, or he's framing it really low, or he's do just doing something to make it f- fascinating and gorgeous, and oh, then also movie. terrifying. Like there's yeah, a t- this- there's a tension that permeates. Like there's no huge exposition dumps. All of these shots just sit and breathe with the characters and the settings and the moments, and it is just so enthralling. You're waiting for something frightening to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this there's there like you said, there's nothing wasted in visually and from a visual standpoint. Any shot like this movie looks like a million bucks. So does Mandy, and I and it just goes to show that with like. Uh, a little bit of care like obviously this movie is a low budget movie and so is mandy uh which you is can crazy make, because they both make, look like 10 million dollars yeah and nobody else's movies look like this every yeah. single new movie that was shot cheap on a dslr they are all using the same three lenses all the shots look the same they're all using natural lighting and there's no fucking style or like look like distinct look to any of them these movies have that. They look like they were shot on like thirty-five millimeter film. Right. Like they're also awesome. Play, in both of those movies, both these movies, they look great. But he's also playing specifically to the limitations of his budget. You know, it's like he knows uh, that in some stuff he's not going to be able to have, uh, you know, crystal pristine images, or maybe his special effects aren't going to hold up. 100%. So like, well, if we just pump in a lot of smoke, backlight everything with crazy red light and make it super high contrast, it's going to look really cool and it's going to cover up the fact that this the this the makeup of these monsters uh isn't really that believable. I saw like some behind the scene like making of of Mandy and like the special effects, the basic special effects are the cheapest looking things. They're not good, you know. Right, like but they're, everything's they're in darkness with just right. highlights showing yeah. you like silhouettes, right? So you you see you feel like you're seeing so much more than you actually are. Exactly. And uh, it's just yeah, executed so well. Um, yeah, I, from a visual standpoint, I can't really knock this any of his work at in all. twenty years there is gonna be think pieces and books and papers and Panos Cosmatos is the one of the great visualists of the twenty first century. Oh my god. Yeah. Him and his cinematographer are doing incredible things. Blah, 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 blah. All over you're gonna mark my words. I'll bet you ten dollars. Meet $10. me back here in the year uh twenty thirty one. Well, only be using Bitcoin by then, so you know. Like, yeah, hit me with those blip coins, dog. Uh, I will say this movie, I think, could probably benefit from some editing. Like, even though the movie is beautiful, it does kind of feel like, uh, you know, the person's like, oh, I can't get rid of this shot. I can't get rid of that. I love it too much. Like, someone who's too much in love with perhaps uh, their work or doesn't trust it enough to to say to let this move a little bit on on its own a little bit more. I think that's um, fair, but I also think you can attribute that to you know, I believe this is his first movie, right? No, that's what I'm. That's that's specifically what I'm saying. It it, it feels like a first movie yeah. in that sense. That like like a lot of times people are like, should I cut this? Like I don't know. Like maybe I'll just leave it because I don't want to cut it and lose it. You know, if it was there. And but it you know it's a slow paced movie. It's deliberately a slow paced movie. And so is Mandy. But Mandy's a slow paced movie where stuff is constantly happening. It's just unfolding slowly. There are times in this movie where I feel like nothing's happening. And we're only on this shot because it looks good, uh, but it kind of just slows the movie. Like the the gears start to come to a halt, and you you want to just kind of keep picking up and going and seeing what happens next. But we're stuck on something for too long. I'll, I tend to agree with that that stance on most movies, but I was willing to forgive a lot of it just because there isn't a lot of stupid exposition or nonsense. Oh, and totally. The, the visuals involved are incredible. Like, if you wrote down what happens in this movie, it's literally not very much. No. But the, the images are all there for you to kind of sit with and, like, just kind of, like, get absorbed into. 
And so I think that's okay, but you're right. It isn't the most kind of, uh, uh, you know, tightly paced movie. But uh, again, like I'm such a big fan of like the tension scenes of tension specifically between like Dr. Barry and his wife. Um, and oh, those and doc- are great. Dr. Barry and uh, his patient mm-hmm. because it, it feels like at any moment, like something awful is going to happen. Yeah. And I was so happy that uh, it didn't just because that meant in the next scene, I was like, okay, this is going to be it. And there is some yeah. payoff. There is some, there's specifically a, a moment where, uh, and this is kind of a spoiler, but uh, uh, Barry's wife says to him, uh, you're not wearing your, your appliances. Right. Because, uh, what is it like he uh, he has I mean I guess you have to go back and say like there's this weird experiment that kind of changes him physically and he wears all these like wigs and shit yeah to, and uh, um and he wears contact them through lenses. all the yeah he wears them through all the whole movie and up until the end he takes them off yeah and but when he does it 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 has that that weight to it of like oh yeah. god what's happening right like oh, something totally. like this means something significant and it's not yeah. good. No, this, I really like those scenes with uh, his wife, particularly that first one, you know, where he, you know, early on in the movie where he like gets home from work. And she's, she's like, I wasn't like sleeping. I was meditating. <laughs> yeah. And she goes like, if you're hungry, there's some brown rice and steamed asparagus in the fridge. And he just goes, oh, that sounds great. You know? Oh, and it's and it, the, he, the, the like pitch in his voice doesn't change, yeah. but you're just like, you know, it's sarcastic. to beat her to death death yeah and you know it's like it's a creep that part's a creepy scene because yes obviously he's holding so much animosity towards her but like the way he responds to the brown rice and thing it's also really funny and for as heavy and dark as uh, uh panos's movies are they all do have these moments of just absolute hilarity in them as well oh I mean, yeah like, and i think it is like it's fair to to give that the credit of black humor versus um like a sort of accidental yeah like i think it's like a very much like reaches that level of like absurdism uh almost like with an undercurrent of like the threat of violence where you can just like it's okay that this is funny but like oh god it it could turn a corner any second yes totally um yeah i I like that. I mean, like the Mandy also has the cheddar goblin famously and other little like goofy parts in this incredibly, I mean, I would say even darker movie than, than this one, you know? Yeah. And Mandy Um, also was like, it was easier to sort of be anchored by the characters because they're a little more relatable. Like this movie mm -hmm. is so sparse on participants that it's like, well, obviously you don't, identify with the uh you know sinister doctor but then identifying with the captive girl is difficult too because you you know almost nothing of her aside right. from that she was has been wronged and uh, you know unwillingly imprisoned well and you actually kind of do end up identifying with the sinister doctor a little bit i mean or at least sympathizing with him when you hey, find speak out for more yourself ab- guy well, I'm just saying, like, when you find out more about the scenario of how he came to be... Yes, there is more backstory. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like things. he's not just a straight-up... I mean, he's an evil dude, but it's not like he was born. He's like, I'm an evil dude. You know, like, he's had this transformative experience that has made him unable to relate to any human being in the slightest, and has just made him completely, uh, you know void of anything resembling human emotions but also has this concept of where like well i still have to act like a regular person and look like a regular person and do things like a regular person when all i want to do is smash people's heads and like you know eat people it's sort of the dr manhattan syndrome right yes exactly like a much more sinister dr manhattan which was honestly probably the more likely outcome of that situation you know um are any other little fu- like any little other moments of levity or humor that you enjoy in the movie? Um, yeah, I think the um, I don't know what her job is, but the lady who works at the uh, institute. Oh, Margot with the glasses. Yeah, yeah, uh, she's a lot of fun. I don't want to give too much away because there's not a, so there's not very much story 
I think you can give the story away because I think more so than a lot of other movies, it's not where you, it's not how where you're going, but how you're getting there type of thing. Yeah, you know, which is true of all movies, but it's very true of this movie because anything on its own doesn't really matter. Like you said, like there's no, there's no huge connection to the characters, which you might say is a flaw or you might say is, uh, um a strength in this situation, but you can take, you can take the plot apart and it's like, you can explain it to someone. And it doesn't make any sense specifically unless you see it, you know? Yeah. I just, I feel like I would prefer to preserve the experience for others yeah. that I, I had because this movie has been on my radar for a long time and I actually oh, didn't yeah. see it until, until now, but I wanted yeah. to. And I remember thinking the trailer was like really cool when it came out. But I yes. haven't watched that for years, and so I really came into this without uh, any knowledge or kind of even some of the imagery and stuff was like kind of gone from my head. So I came into it pretty blind and really enjoyed myself. And yeah. so I would definitely recommend that anyone else do the same. But it is the kind of movie like sit quietly in your basement or living room or wherever and... um you know, with all the lights off and mm-hmm. uh, just enjoy this as an experience. Well, we could also do a thing here, right? Like where we say right now, okay, from this moment on, if you haven't seen the movie, st- you know, and you want, you don't want anything spoiled, stop listening because, and then just go spoiler heavy from, from, from here on out. Nah. I do okay. want to talk about the climax though. Well, then what the hell, man? <laughs> uh, Well, not, not in terms of like specifics, but like, it has a similar sort of issue that uh, I don't know. You remember a Danny Boyle's Sunshine? So I've only seen the like the first thirty minutes of that oh, movie. Well, well, spoiler alert! I know, I know what happened for though. you, I know, but well, the I know the big happens. criticism of that movie was that uh, it like turned into a monster movie, right? Yeah, like, it's sort of this yeah. this grandiose sci fi movie that asks a lot of existential questions, and you know, it's very high art and all that. But then it, by the the climax, it devolves into a sort of just a slasher movie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you you see a similar occurrence here, but I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I think you can have. Uh, I think th- I think that both. occurrence is very appropriate given how what we know about the character, what we learn about the characters, and how things unfold. It makes total sense that it turns into this like weirdo horror movie. And oh, I was just I was just saying that <laughs> that I was just saying that uh, I don't. I was think looking that, at my phone and I missed what you said. <laughs> oh, psh. I was hoping to see. I was seeing if you could uh, just. Uh, no, I was waiting for you to snatch that you know. out of the air. I was saying that, like, I don't think it's a criticism at all or a negative at all that it turns into uh, this, like, monster. Well, I guess not even monster, but, like, semi-monstrous horror movie at the end. Because given what we know, what little we do know or or learn about the characters and the situations leading up to it, it makes kind of total sense. Yeah, 100%. And you sort of need that final kind of a little bit of an action-y sequence to kind of ramp up the pace and the ramp up the stakes. And then uh, mm-hmm. you get your obligatory uh, open-ended, uh, albeit happy ending, I think. I, I was left feeling pretty satisfied for a movie that, that comes in feeling uh, uh, largely abstract. Uh, yes, the, it's a, f- a fairly satisfying end to the events. Well, it's almost like we we kind of when we start in the movie, we we don't see as much of the fantastic, and as we go along, we see more and more of the fantastic. But it is kind of in a way because those things are being hidden from us. That's more of the fantasy elements of the movie. Like that's the fantasy world that these characters live in like we don't know that they're in that the lab they're in is underground we don't know that uh dr barry is wearing a wig and contacts you know to cover up like the physical scars from his previous experiment we don't know anything about elena we don't know initially don't really know what her powers are you know and then when we finally see all those things 
uh, they emerge outside of those scenarios. You know, like obviously there's the getting out of the lab and all that stuff and all the weird things we see in that in that portion. But then when we really see what Dr. Barry really looks like and and what how what a, the more understanding of Elena and her powers, that's as we get further away from the Institute and the lab and into the real world. Is it though? Is it the real world? Or is this just another layer of the Institute? I mean, I guess that's because there's no telling what really happens to the black when you're in the black goo, right? Dr. Barry went through the black goo baby Elena went through the black goo and when they came out the other side are they sure that they came back to known reality or is it something different I don't know you know I don't know either but uh, you can I, 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 that's just the assumption I'm making based on the movie yeah it's the, the only assumption the we can make honestly yeah um, you know this movie's kind of interesting uh, we're talking about the disconnect bullshit from... it's not interesting at all <laughs> no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the dis- the disconnect we have from the characters, because I uh, was listening. This was actually some time ago. I was listening to an interview with the director, and he was talking. Like he was probably being interviewed around the time Mandy came out, but he was talking about this. The, movie. the director of this movie, Pantone Comatose. That guy, yeah. That's uh, a cool name. It I, is a cool I'm name. still patting my patting myself <laughs> on the back for that. Like uh, again, it's not to make fun of the man's yeah, name, right? But yes. Those words are so close. Yeah. Um, But he was talking about how when he wrote the screenplay, so his father had died like in the mid nineties. So he was, had been dead for some time, but then his mother had just died. And I think he had right before his mother died, he had broke up with his girlfriend and he was just saying like, he felt completely alone and isolated in the world. And that is like literally every character in this movie is in one way or another, alone and isolated to various degrees um, and disconnected. So it kind of makes sense that we don't have these really strong emotional connections to any of the characters because every, every single one of them is emotionally detached the way he was when he was writing the screenplay. Well, I think it's really cool that uh, to, in order to cope with that tragedy, he decided to make a film. Yeah. I think that's ar- arguably one of the, healthiest ways to cope with that that kind of uh, grief uh that i've ever heard and i mean look what came out of it too you know yeah totally. and he also i mean i was joking earlier like his dad obviously didn't hand him uh a, ba- right, yeah. a bag full of money to make this movie it's uh that was his you know his family receiving the uh, DVD royalties from Tombstone uh, right. after his passing. So I think that's not only a good way to uh, cope with grief, but to also, you know, uh, take the the fruits of your, your father's labor and kind of honor his memory and his legacy by making another movie. That's a oh, really absolutely. cool story. Yeah. yeah. And like, I agree with you when you said, like, you like how he doesn't make a lot of movies. He's only made two movies in, like, a span of over 10 years um you know so you know what he's whatever he's going to do there's no there's not going to be throwaways for him whether you like the movie or not he's like he's all in that being said like i would really like him to make another movie because i want to see what he's got what he's got next you know yeah panos please make another movie i know you're listening i know you listen to obscure regional movie podcasts so <laughs> please I was listening to an inter- the same interview. It was on. Uh, he was being interviewed on that. If you were listening to the podcast that Elijah Wood has, where he just interviews horror directors. Excuse me. Yeah, it's called. Uh, what's it called? It's called like Visionaries or something. But Elijah Wood, you know, he owns a production company that produces primarily horror movies, and so him and his business partner have a podcast where they. Uh, yeah, just interview horror director people who are either specifically horror directors or have made a significant horror movie, even if they're not like primarily horror directors. And uh, he was—they were interviewing him, and in the same interview, like they're trying to like get him to talk about stuff. He's like, "I don't want—I don't want to talk about that." Like, and they keep saying, "Like, what are some of your biggest fears?" He goes, "Talking about my biggest fears is my biggest fear." <laughs> 
And I'm like, like, so you don't want to say it? He's like, no. He seems like such an interesting guy. Yeah. I mean, he's there's there's more about him where he's like, um, uh, he admits a dislike for baby boomers, new age spiritual ideals. Mm-hmm. And then he also, uh, uh, kind of the themes of the movie, he says, I look at Arborea as kind of naive. You know, the doctor Arborea right. who started the Institute. He had the best of intentions of wanting to expand human consciousness but I think his ego got in the way of that and ultimately it turned into a poisonous, destructive thing because Arborea is trying to control consciousness and control the mind. There's a moment of truth in the film where the whole thing starts to disintegrate because it stops being about their humanity and becomes about an unattainable goal. That is the Black Rainbow, trying to achieve some kind of unattainable state that is ultimately probably destructive. Yeah. That's fantastic. I have such that a... That's really cool. Like, all these existential dilemmas currently in my life because I see things that uh, it's always about expansion and growth and right. leveling up and all the, all of this. And to what end? What is the ultimate goal? If the, the goal is to just keep ascending with no ceiling, right. that, to me, sounds destructive. It is destructive, and I mean, but isn't that the? I mean, not just in our individual like lives, whatever. But isn't that the whole American attitude or the whole capitalist attitude is to expand with never stopping? You know. Yeah. And look at and look at and look at we're currently witnessing the results of that on the physical world and nature. With you know what's what's happening right now in our in in, in our environment. Yeah. And. The same could be true when we apply that to our personal lives. Why do we always, I mean, yes, sure. Like learning new things is great. You know, like constantly educating yourself is great. I'm not saying like you should stop, you know, growing, you know, mentally or whatever, but like, but this like constant thing, like you said, of one-upsmanship, like, well, I have to be better than I was, you know, two weeks ago. And then, then, then what's my next goal? Like everything has to be this monumentous achievement. Yeah. And if you're not, the most successful person in the world, you're the least successful person in the world type of thing. And it's like, or the, or there's specific value on different types of successes. Maybe I'm really proud of the doodle I did this morning. And that means more to me than uh, financial success, but like, that's not the way the world like views it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like how much, how much money is enough and how much, you know, how much of a, a footprint is enough and how, how much, yeah, where 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 does it stop? Where does it end? Like it, exponential growth, yeah, is uh, uh, unhealthy, right? Yeah. The only the only thing that grows uh, exponentially are destructive things: fire, uh, disease, right. uh, fungus, right? These these things that we are should fear, right? Because they can you know destroy and damage things beyond repair and you're unable to control and i think Mm -hmm. uh that's exactly the the theme that is nailed in this movie so i wouldn't call this a dystopian sci-fi movie but it definitely has some some lessons to teach you if you're you know uh if you're willing to hear what it has to say well that's yeah and it's like it's interesting too like uh, saying like what how panos was thinking about the attitude of uh, what's what's his name? The doctor Arborea, Arborea, you know, of just like going out of control in his thoughts and you know his ambitions. And then when he's on his deathbed, he goes, "Oh, can you play something calming for me or something nice?" Images and they just put on an ad for a uh, travel ad for Maui, you know. And it's just such a like like a juxtaposition of you know, kind of like this fake representation of, you know, because all travel ads are completely fake, even if there's yeah. truth in them, it's just like, it's still presenting a false reality of a place you're going to. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but somehow. Well, I, this... I just can't stop thinking about how uh, uh, Jurassic Park, like it, it's such a cliche now. And I, I, maybe it's an oversimplification, but Jeff Goldblum was right in, and it pretty much yeah. applies to everything. We're so preoccupied with whether we could, 
we didn't stop to think if we should. Yeah, or the things like the things we're afraid about a new technology or new science are not the things, the actual things we should be worried about as a society, you know, like, uh, like throughout history, you know, like, oh, we're so worried about AI currently, but like, are maybe there is something to be worried about that, but are we, we're worried about robots, uh, taking us over. Like I'm more concerned about like, well, how are we going to treat these robots if they actually do become conscious? Like, are we going to view them as living creatures or are we going to abuse them? You know, I'm more concerned about where the robots are going to go when they don't work anymore. What happens? Here's a question I have. This might sound stupid. Where do all the unused cars go? They get squished in those little cubes and those little cubes gets, you know, put in a, uh, go, put on a, a ship Sold for scrap. Bro, that's a lot of cars. That is a lot of cars. If you think about car manufacturing over a course of a hundred years. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this place called the ocean, and you can just dump a bunch of shit in there. Well, no one will ever know. Here's the thing. Until they do. If it's just metal cubes going into the ocean, yeah. I am less upset about that than say, you know, batteries and computers and Oh no, but that stuff's going in there too. All that stuff, yeah. yeah. But if we're talking about just just compressed steel yeah. cubes, uh, yeah, that's that's not the worst. But goddamn, yeah, it ain't good. Nope. Uh, luckily, this movie is, however. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Beyond the Black Rainbow gets the old trash heap seal of approval. Sure does. Um. Next time on The Trash Heap, we're talking recycling in the automobile industry. You're listening to KCTS 9 Radio oh AM. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess there's not there's not a ton more we can say without like going into like the specifics of the plot. Nah, this movie's little... great. And it's, it's yeah. so hard to come up with good things to say about good movies. It really it's is. It's easier to complain like... and point out what the, what the shitty stuff totally, is. Totally, you know. Uh, uh, let's see what old Rotten Tomatoes has to say about this one. Yeah, I will say like, well, there's some not anything specific about, you know, the plot or the movie itself, but just like little interesting little tidbits that I came across, um, that somehow relate to it. Like we talked about like how, how they, you know, for a low budget movie, they're like making every penny count, and in that same interview I was I listened to with the director, he was talking about uh, as a little kid going onto the set of. Cobra that the movie his dad made and he's saying that how there was a scene where like one of the characters was supposed to burst like come through a door with a knife like chopping the door down with a knife and they had made a robotic arm that would stab the door in the exact same place every time for each take so they'd put up a new door and then this knife would robotic arm would like computer program the same spot each time for each take and that just seems like such a fucking like you know, big Hollywood studio, like waste of money, just jerking yourselves off. Like, look at this robot arm we got. Like, what's the point of that? Like one, you could achieve the same effect by just putting dots on the other side of the door, This, you know, in the same place where a prop, uh, you know, manager is going to stab, or you could just like not even worry about it. And people won't notice that you stabbed three inches to the side from a different angle and a different take, you know, it's true. I mean, especially back then, like, I think more so now people are really looking for like, oh, look, they really screwed that up and the frames don't match up and blah, blah, blah. But back then it was way less of an issue. Uh, Our our good friends over at the Rotten Tomatoes website, uh, we've got a 60% fresh rating on the tomato meter uh, off of the 35 reviews. 52% 52% audience score off of 2,500 plus ratings. I see, I, I can understand why. Just because, like, the things you mentioned, like the very deliberate pacing, the right. sort of quiet nature, like the lack of dialogue and exposition, uh, and also the sort of uh, minimal amount of events occurring in order to get the story across. So that score makes sense based on what i know about people but i would give this a much higher score absolutely and it's like this movie is not perfect but i mean like what did you say they were like 60 percent and 50 percent that's a solid d and an f you know like this movie is not an a plus but i mean it's definitely in the b realm you know like 
P category, A minus. Uh, Most definitely. Yeah, it's it's def- it's definitely worth your time. You know, like if anything, too, it's just like even if you're like you find the plot a little boring or whatever, like this would be a great movie to have on in the background. You know, like say you're in a dark cocktail bar watching this on the TV. Oh it's, yeah. You know, to put this on in your home and play to soundtrack only or play some other type of music with the sound off on the TV. Like also great, you know, like this is a, this is a true visual art piece for sure. Yeah. And uh, one thing we forgot to mention is the uh, music. It's got a really nice uh, synth soundtrack, like sort of a low pulsing kind of a, kind of a mood to it. And then lots of sort of uh, like echoing, uh, low frequency like stingers like just yeah kind of stuff and it's great mm-hmm. yes i'm a big fan watch it once and then watch it twice yeah why not you can watch it for free lots of places it's on tubi and i watched it on amazon prime i believe I it's it was... also available on um pluto tv boom there you go familiar with that i will say that tubi is a real diamond in the rough as far as I agree. Uh, streaming services. It's totally free all the time, and it has a dense library of genre movies. And it if you really, really like, if you are willing to scroll past the main menu, uh, you will find some incredible uh, comedy, horror, action, uh, martial arts movies from like the seventies, eighties, nineties, and beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I definitely would recommend if you're a movie person and you have time to scroll, uh, definitely, definitely download Tubi for wherever you stream your movies. Yeah, it's not going to hurt. The only the only criticism I would give Tubi, and this is a pretty mild criticism, is that you know it's free, but there are ads, and the ads are just kind of like timed. They're not strategically placed. Yeah. Within like so you'll be watching and just like mid scene dialogue that will just cut off and three ads will play and then we'll uh, pick up again rather than the ads being put in between transitions or whatever. But Yep. And you also, Ooh. if you want to, um, you know, pause and revisit a movie uh, or save movies to a queue or anything like that, you do have to create an account. So Yeah. Just, but I mean, it's a free account. It's pretty easy. So Yeah. Highly recommended. Well, I think that probably wraps up this edition of the Trash Sheep. Yeah, that about does it for this one. Uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, Sick as Hell, uh, Pantone, mm. Q, Cos- Cosmonaut, or whatever his name is, is awesome. <laughs> Comatose. And, uh, the goddamn yeah, check out this- sci-fi summer is uh, going to roll on. Uh, we'll probably be wrapping it up here pretty soon uh, by the end of August. So if you have any suggestions of movies we should watch, uh Get those in now. Check us out on Instagram yeah. at Trash Heap Pod. Um, I don't know about Facebook. You can, but you know, it's a it's a real shithole over there. So it sure is. Keith, what do you always say? Until next time, the dumpster is closed. Goodbye, everyone. I would love to do a fictionalized version of my life, but I don't want my actual life out there. All right, we'll just tell him it's fake. <laughs>